thank you guys for joining us. Um, Jimmy, I just wanted to start with you, if you don't mind. Uh, obviously, as founder of Wikipedia, uh, can you tell us a little more about how that came about? Where do you see it fitting in the online experience in the current day? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, Wikipedia is now uh, 21 years old. Um, sort of just started with me typing hello world and, and starting a website and uh, inviting people to contribute. And uh, I mean, there's so many things, it's a big question I can speak for two hours about yeah, of uh, beginning of Wikipedia, but uh, you know, in the, the first couple of years, uh, our traffic was doubling every three to four months. So the first few doublings is fine, but then it gets pretty hairy. So there was a, a big scramble to sort of put together the nonprofit and raise money to carry on. Today, Wikipedia is the, you know, a part of the infrastructure of the world. It's one of the most popular websites. As a part of that founding journey, I also founded what is today Fandom, Fandom. Uh, which is the for-profit wiki company that's, as the name says, all about fans and fandoms. Um, and obviously, it's an interesting time because as the world has become increasingly concerned, and rightly so, with low-quality information, uh, with toxicity online and so forth, we're kind of like the shining beacon of like, oh, you, it doesn't have to be that way. There's actually a lot of great, nice people in the world. You can write quality content in a safe environment and have fun doing it. Yeah, and upon that, just would you ever consider putting Wikipedia on the blockchain? I don't even know what that means. So. Neither do no. I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to sound <laughs> profound. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can tell you uh, we, we're pretty far along into, the, into that bubble, but I remember the first sort of when there was the whole ICO bubble was going on, I'm just trying to get my head around it. I had more than one person come to me, and I'm like, okay, put, they were like, put Wikipedia on the blockchain. I'm like, you tell me what that means, because I'm interested, but I don't understand it. And after a butt of erming and awing, they're like, but Jimmy, don't you realize with this market as hot as it is, if you just did this, you could probably bring in a couple hundred million. And I'm like, I've had a good run. I don't want to go out with, and then he defrauded people of 200 million, right? I'm like, don't, don't think, I need a positive, sensible idea first. Absolutely, and Perkins, when, when did they come into picture for you to uh, get involved in fandom? What kind of insights have you seen from the data collected so far about the trends of like, the contemporary fan? And where do you see things going from here? So I've been uh, CEO of Fandom for three and a half years. Um, the uh, uh, Fandom was purchased by the private equity firm TBG uh, about four years ago, and they asked me to come in and, and see what I could do to help out. And so we've we've rolled up uh, a couple other businesses and to help serve fans. So the mission is serving fan identity. You know, because you if you're a gamer, if you're an anime nerd, if you're a fan of any movies or TV that we talk about, you find yourself on fandom every month. About 300 million people come every month. Yeah. And so, you know, what we get as a consequence of that is a lot of visibilities you asked about, like what's the data and insights. And mm -hmm. so the things that is most intriguing is when, you know, a new show or a new game comes out, we're able to really see, you know, to what degree people are interested in this game or this movie or this new anime program relative to the other ones. Like you know, Game of Thrones season six versus Game season five, or yeah. you know, the you know, a new release of World of Warcraft Classic, yeah. for example. We're able to really get insights. It's, it's it's pretty fascinating what you can see in terms of user behavior at that scale. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, guys, hands up. Who has questions here from the audience? We have got any questions come flowing? We have one in the left here and one in the middle. 
We have three over here. Thank you so much. So with any great company, there's always hurdles. What was the biggest hurdle that Wikipedia had in its early stages? Um, well, what I always say is I'm a pathological optimist. Uh, and so I think everything is fine all the time. And so it's hard for me to think about that. So I'd say the biggest long-term challenge has always been uh, what we call the health of the community. Like, are the people who are actually there doing the work, creating, you know, the encyclopedia or creating the fandom uh, wikis, are, are they healthy? Are they happy? Are, are, they, are they doing productive things and, and all of that? That's always really first and foremost in our minds. And then, of course, during that period of extreme growth, uh, there was a lot of technical challenges just to, um, you know, when you're doubling every two months, you kind of have to double your hardware investment every two months or three months or four months. And uh, so that was, that was a challenge in the early days. Thank you for that question. Hands up again. This gentleman here. I'm really interested in the problem of misinformation. And my question is, is, do we solve the problem by looking at the platforms and the way that they're structured? Or should we avoid the kind of political morass that would cause by focusing on educating young people in media literacy? What's the approach, platform or individual? Well, I don't think that's necessarily an either or. Uh, clearly, we need to focus on media literacy of the most vulnerable people, which, by the way, isn't necessarily young people who are well aware the internet's full of bullshit. Uh, it's people my age who are sometimes quite naive about, about what they're reading. If it looks plausibly good, they might believe it when they shouldn't. Uh, but yeah, so educating consumers is really important. But I also think, without getting into regulation and what I think about that, because that's, that is an interesting issue, but I think um, as consumers, we should be very much pressuring the platforms to say, look, I'm not enjoying being fed a line of misinformation, and I'm probably going to leave your platform and go somewhere else if I keep getting this low-quality content. Um, and I think they need to definitely pay attention to it in a much more serious way than I think they have so far. And I, I would agree with that. I think the, the size and scale of these platforms is so massive in terms of their profitability. Um, the argument that there's not a technical solution to some of these issues, I think is a fallacy. I think there's plenty of resourcing and technical talent at these companies to do a far better job than they do today driving some of that governance. Thank you for that. We have a gentleman up here. Hi, could you talk about um, the different strategies and stuff of, of using open source to build both a foundation and, and a business? Because it goes against like typically what you know, you'd be taught in business school of making your product or service freely available for anyone else to take and, and how you've succeeded in that and what advice you'd have for others looking to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about Wikipedia is in those early days, um, what a lot of people thought about uh, content is king or is it king or whatever, a lot of people thought that the way to get a really popular website is to have unique, interesting content with a wall around it uh, that nobody can take. We took the opposite view of just like, oh, it's all freely licensed, take it, put it on your website, do whatever you want with it, which actually, because there's a requirement in the license to link back to us in the early days, that, that generated massive amounts of traffic and, and interest and all of that. Uh, and so that openness, which also, by the way, means people are more comfortable contributing, more comfortable participating. And I think that that lesson sort of 
for a website launching in 2001 to 2005 is interesting, but I think the deeper lesson, which is uh, oftentimes in a lot of aspects of business, um, being open, being sort of transparent with your partner, sharing code or resources or whatever it might be, actually strengthens your position in the long run. Um, you know, if it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do you any good to have some very special, unique advantage if you don't actually have customers and people using it. So you've got to sort of be more generous with it and it, it will bring back bigger returns in general. But I mean, obviously every situation's specific. Brilliant, thank you very much. Guys, hands up, any questions? We have one here, one back here as well. So you can start here. Thank you, hi there. I uh, wanted to ask about the incentive strategies for contributors at Wikipedia and Fandom. How would you say that they are similar or different considering the structure of Wikipedia as a foundation and nonprofit and then uh, the structure of a Fandom? Uh, so, as a I mean, I, this is a great question and this was one of the first questions when I was setting up at the time Wikia um, is are people going to want to do this, right? Is, it, is, it, is Wikipedia only successful because it's a charity and it's an educational mission and so forth? And it turns out that, that the motivations are slightly different, but they're actually more similar than you think. People care about their community. They care about the things they care about. Uh, with fandom, when I talk to uh, the top admins at some of the wikis, Obviously, they love Star Trek or Star Wars, but they also love the people around them, and, and, and they love being part of that community, and they want to kind of have fun with their friends and do interesting things. And so that's, that is a motive that is of generosity. And, and I contrast that with the motive, which I'm not disparaging, but the motive of, um, say, influencers on Instagram, right? Where my, my motive is I want to get famous so I can get endorsement deals or whatever. Fine, great, but you won't find that in the wiki world. You'll just find people who are like, oh, I love this thing and I want to meet people who love the thing that I love. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the, there is a, if you think about it, a dial of like seriousness. The dial of seriousness for Wikipedia is pretty far to the right. The dial to, <laughs> to fandom is pretty far to the left in terms of like relevancy, irrelevance, real world, imagined world. So, you know, I think on Wikipedia, there's a fair amount of gravitas. And on the fandom world, they're kind of like, hey, you know, was, uh, what's going on with Han Solo? You know, so that, or, or how do I get to this next level in World of Warcraft? I mean, there's just, and, and as a consequence, it's actually really social in the communities in certain ways. Like I talked to admins who, you know, have met their spouse, you know, as they do it at doing a, a meetup. And, you know, they, they're incredibly passionate because it, it's actually really core to their identity. And whereas I think on the Wikipedia side, there's a seriousness and a, and a, and a real relevancy issue. Whereas on the fandom side, it's, again, about my culture, my identity, and it's a little a lot softer in that way. Just following up on that, I have two kind of questions. But the first one is when you were deciding to create fandom, did the feeling of this kind of might already semi-exist within Reddit be a big consideration? You know the way subreddits for everything, including kind of fan spaces? I think we're older than Reddit, so that wasn't an inspiration. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but um, yeah, no, That's I mean, a, a part of it is um, there the, just the observations that humans are social, that most people are basically decent, people mm -hmm. like to meet people of similar interests and have fun together. All of that definitely is a part of what was percolating in my mind. It's like, okay, let's, you know, let's think about, uh, actually, I mean, an old inspiration was just like, I was on some emailing 
mailing lists mm. and people discussing things in depth, really high quality, and just thinking, wow, like this is really interesting. People are very generous with their time. They want to share what they know. They want to share something they're passionate about. How can I, what do they need? How can I, what can I do that will help them uh, sort of fulfill whatever it is they want to do? Absolutely. And in, in terms of things getting more immersive, you know, there's talks of the metaverse kind of expanding. How do you see that? going within the like immersive fan experience? Is that something fandom are, with all the data that they have so far and information, is that something that they want to explore further? Where do you see that going? Well, you know, our view is that um, we deal in all in metaverses, uh, basically. Yeah, I mean, already, they, yeah. They already, so yeah. I think there are these imagined worlds that people kind of invest their exactly, life yeah. and time into. Um, we actually see that manifest itself, ironically, more in the real world than we do in any sort of virtual world today. I was just at PeerCon in Poland last week, and I guarantee you no one here has been to PeerCon, but it's the largest Comic-Con in Eastern Europe. And so 75,000 people came in cosplay and to get excited about gaming. And you know, so there's 75 or so major you know, real world events that surround fandoms in the world today. And so actually what we see is like more and more people willing to cosplay, willing to celebrate their fandoms in real life, willing to connect um, you know, as, as real live individuals and necessarily diving into you know, some sort of virtual world. And I, you know, a friend of mine started you know, Second Life, and so I've got a sense of what that world was like. And I think it's, there's a lot of effort to kind of get into a Second Life, whereas um, you know, can, and to some degree it's somewhat limiting in one metaverse, right? Yeah. The, the fa people whose fandoms are somewhat diverse. I mean, I may be a Star Trek nerd, but I also love Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And, you know, I also love world building games. So it's like I'm able to, in my fandoms, have multiple metaverses that I can participate in. I think that's going to be probably more true than less true going forward. Yeah, that's interesting. You're basically saying metaverse has been around for a long time, but it's, there, you've, you've, there is a kind of ongoing hype about it. Do you think there is a kind of exaggerated hype about it at the moment? I, again, I, um, Jimmy and I are both old enough and been in tech long enough to have seen a few of these you know, cycles going yeah. around, and so that's why I reference Second Life. I mean, Second Life's been around for, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years now, and you know, there's this VR's now been around for almost a decade, and I participated in some very early VR work, and you know, it's, it's a, still the technology is not to the degree that I think it needs to be to make it easy for everybody. I mean, yeah. you know, I've had VR headsets in my house. I have kids that are now older. There's not a time in their life that they picked up a VR headset. It was stacked next to the, I mean, model after model after model that yeah. was stacked next to the television that was never picked up. And so I still think there's a buried entry there that in terms of people thinking of a metaverse as some sort of virtual experience, yeah. that, is, that is still a, to, uh, in an, another generation or two of technology that we, I don't see it right now. Okay. Thank you. We got a couple of questions here. Fantastic. Uh, Oksana, if you want to go to this gentleman here at the back, and then we'll kind of merge in towards the middle. Hi. Uh, first of all, as a Wikipedia junkie who spends hours um, just going through pages, and I just want to say thank you to Jimmy. And uh, then I have a, a two-part question. Um, so the, the, the first part is, uh, um, as we all know, Wikipedia is uh, relying on donors and uh, uh, community contributor to survive. Um, I just want to know if um, you think if, if the model is 
change to monetize the, the site, would there still be that kind of contribution to it? And number two is, has that ever come across your mind or a, as a part of Wikipedia? Right, great. No. So, yeah, Wikipedia has done uh, very well financially. We always are very conservative with money. So every year we try to bring in a little bit more than we spend, and so therefore we build our reserves and so forth. Uh, and the model has worked very well because people love Wikipedia. So we would, you know, um, sometimes people say, oh, it must be very hard to turn down what would be an enormous amount of ad revenue. And it's like, we never even once, like that is never a topic of discussion at the board level, never. Not interesting at all. Now, that's Wikipedia, and Wikipedia has its unique place in the culture. And the question, a good theoretical question is, could it have been successful under a different model? Could you have had an ad support? And I think, yeah, maybe it could have. I mean, fandom, one of the questions at the beginning of fandom is, will people want to voluntarily contribute on a site that has ads? Um, and I thought, I think they will, I don't know. Let's try and see, but of course now, obviously, people contribute a huge amount to YouTube and to this and to that and the other, and it's quite normal. Uh, so could Wikipedia have been? I think one of the things that would have been different and, and not good for Wikipedia is Wikipedia is extremely mission-driven. A free encyclopedia for every person on the planet in their own language is the only thing we do, and, and we're really super focused on it. Whereas if we had a more commercial model, then you become just interested in a lot of different things, which is, can be, that's not unhealthy or a criticism, but like fandom is much more interested in exploring new ideas, exploring new markets, and doing different kinds of things in service of fan identity, um, which is great for fandom, but wouldn't be great for Wikipedia. I mean, I remember some, one time someone t told me, oh, like, Wikipedia should have a like, free webmail product. This was about the time Gmail came out, and I was like, I don't think so. Just on that point, do you think advertising is killing the web that's maybe a bit dramatic? No, I don't think advertising is killing the web. I do think there are some serious problems out there. Um, and I think that what, where I identify a problem is with the prioritization of content based on virality rather than quality. So uh, that leads to all kinds of sort of bad outcomes. And Take it's one baits. of the reasons social media is as toxic as it is, is because the algorithms choose whatever gets the most engagement, which is often people being jerks, you know? Um, and so I think you have to be really careful about that. But no, I mean, advertising is a perfectly fine business model. Okay, so. thank you. We have a bunch of questions here, so let's start. Um, Oksana, just said here, this gentleman here. Thank you. So my question is how uh, Wikipedia has been dealing with the amount of information of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you have new research papers coming up every day, so it must be a challenge, right? So about the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, we, I could talk for hours, but I'll just try to keep it quick. <laughs> There's a group in English Wikipedia called Wikiproject Medicine, and there are parallel groups uh, in many, many languages. They do work together with each other. Uh, and they are very, very firm about misinformation, disinformation. Uh, we're really proud of our, our coronavirus, COVID vaccine coverage. Uh, it's been really kind of a, a bedrock of what you hope Wikipedia would do. Um, and so, yeah, it's a challenge, but it's, it's also, I mean, one of the great things about Wikipedia is when you've got a really interesting situation like that, you've got a huge number of people who want to help. Um, and I think a lot of people who care about these issues understand, like, 
doctors and researchers and so on, that Wikipedia is as important a, well, it's probably the most important vector for public health information anywhere in the world. Like, people turn to us, they trust us, so we have to earn that trust. And just here on the left, there's a question here. Hi, uh, Jimmy, first of all, thank you so much for Wikipedia. I love your mission, your culture. I've been to your guys' office in San Francisco and saw how many people are feeling so happy with your culture. Thank you so much for that. And most of all, thank you for building a company that shows like in our current still money-driven world that a successful company can be very mission-driven. My question is, um, what do you think, as the founder of a very mission-driven company, what's, what are the main trade-offs that you had to make to keep executing your mission and stay true to your mission? And what would you recommend to the founders who are building their mission-driven companies uh, to go to cope with those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... That a part of that is because Wikipedia is a charity, a nonprofit, that does make it easier to sort of stay true to the mission, right? Um, it's a very clearly focused mission um, because the mission is kind of at the top of the, of the hierarchy. Now, we, we still have to be business-like, right? Uh, Wikipedia has to financially be sustainable, uh, but that's really important. I think for, for companies, I'm really fascinated and very interested in the B Corporation movement, double bottom line kind of things, really fascinating. I think they're hard, they're really complicated, um, but I also think they can be successful if you get the alignment right. The alignment is you've got a mission that people believe in, that you believe in, that your employees believe in, and it's profitable, uh, and that means you're able to get better talent, to get more passion out of people because it's something that's meaningful to them, and so therefore, it, it ends up not being a conflict between should we do our mission or should we try to make more money? Now, obviously, it's easy for those to diverge and sometimes that's okay and sometimes it's unfortunate. Um, but I think looking for those places for social entrepreneurs where I've got this idea and it's actually really good for the world in some whatever way and it looks like a good business idea as well, that's brilliant. Like That's an amazing spot to be. Perfect. We've got a question out here in the front. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm really fascinated in regards to... Oh, can I take... <laughs> Uh, I'm really fascinated in regards to Wikipedia. I remember when I was a child, and I might be showing my age, uh, we had encyclopedias, uh, maybe 20 books of encyclopedia textbooks that cost $100, like hundreds of dollars. Um, and every single time we did a research paper, we would kind of flip through it. Some of the information was outdated. And what Wikipedia has done, and a little bit of what fandom has done, is they've created this access to information uh, globally and on the internet. And that's such a, um, at the, right now it's uh, kind of normal, but at the time it must have been an extraordinary idea, something that no one really would have thought of. Um, what do you think would be the new sort of leap for access to information? Do you think there's going to be another revolution in regards to that? Or do you think it's going to be standard? You sort of have Wikipedia, you have this model, and it's just going to continue on mm. with a regular development? Or do you think, are you anticipating a huge leap in a different sort of forum? 
So I don't know. Uh, that's my answer to that. Um, I have a few thoughts around that. So first of all, I think an encyclopedia will always remain relevant. It's a piece of the, the structure of knowledge that makes sense to people. Uh, I've been really fascinated by the rise of informal education versus formal education. So if you look at the number of people earning college degrees globally, it's pretty stable. It goes up a little, down a little in different countries, different contexts. It's pretty stable. If you look at the number of people who are enrolled in some form or another into some sort of informal learning, whether that's just reading tons on Wikipedia or doing, particularly around computer programming, uh, doing, you know, learning a new programming language with an online course is quite normal these days. Uh, then you've got Khan Academy and a lot of really interesting stuff like that. I think all that stuff is really interesting and has a very positive impact on the world as, you know, if you want to up your skills or refresh and become, uh, as a computer programmer, uh, if you're like, oh yeah, the language that I'm really good at is kind of dying out, I need to be tooled up on the new language. That's fine, it's all online, you can do it online, right? That's really interesting. Now that's not true for every profession and everything, but that's really powerful and really interesting, so that's already happening. Um, is there some amazing revolution beyond that? I don't know, I'm, I'm watching to see. Yeah, I'll give just two cents, one, the, the reason why Wikipedia is so massively successful is because it's editable, and, there were, and text is easily editable. So there's a form factor of text, which I think, given the platform, made it really durable and really effective. The, the question that I have right now, and is starting to emerge, the next sort of generation of reference is video. I mean, YouTube has an, is an amazing reference source and a utility for people to do problem solving with. The challenge is it's uneditable right now. So you've got like one video of one way to do something, but it's not editable. And the question that I think is emerging from folks that I'm talking to is, will there be tools and technology, particularly YouTube developer, others that allow editable video in a way, either through AR tools, so you could look at a video but then see an overlay that's updated information that's synchronous to it, because so many people use video today as a reference source. Um, so that, I think, for me, is an interesting question, and it's a problem that hasn't been solved, but if, it's a, but if a problem that does get solved is particularly as augmented reality becomes more of a form factor, so if I'm wearing glasses and I have a reference video that could appear, would effectively the AR update be available to me? I'd have the original reference video, but I'd have an AR update if I'm doing something to solve. So that, that I think, maybe is my gut that that's an interesting direction. Just one final question on the just popping it back down to fan culture, you're seeing the rise in NFTs as CEO of the company. How are you digesting this rise in NFTs? Do you think there's something that fandom should be kind of getting involved in? Are you seeing, obviously, the fan base uh, uh, buying NFTs? Is, is there an opportunity there, or do you think it's a fad that's going to come and go? Oh, the, the dreaded Web3 question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've got a, my point of view on uh, Web3 is that I love it for the creator economy. I think for too long, creators have not benefited for a secondary market for their work product. So whether you're a visual artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a graphic artist, whether you're a videographer, once you've created that work product and it trades on the market, it sells to a studio or sells to an art community, you don't benefit from that. And I think, I think the idea that there is a blockchain source that tracks the actual physical good in a way that preserves the economics for the artist is incredibly powerful and really, once the economy scales correctly, it'll be power incredible. 
it's, we did a survey our fandom audience and said, hey, do you want an NFT of your favorite X, Y, or Z fan community? And the answer was decidedly no. Um, the majority of the fan communities that we talk to, the hundreds of thousands of millions of people, have seen NFTs as, you know what, this seems to be a lot of hype and excitement that's grounded in a lot of crypto finance. Yep. as a way to transact money, and they see it for what it is, which is this somewhat blatant money machine, yep. as opposed to what our fans and true fans want, which is something that is driven by creators and by art. Yep. And so when you ask them about that first thing, I said they love it. When you ask them about, hey, do you want an NFT in a trading marketplace where it's all about the money? They say, no thanks. Okay, interesting. One final question with the gentleman here. Uh, hi, Jimmy. What do you think about AI in editing Wikipedia articles? I remember I was an active moderator admin like 17 years ago, and a lot of work was just actually editing little things and uh, fixing the language and so on. But AI could improve that, but AI could also you know, make things much faster and generate incorrect facts as well. What do you think? Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, right now, um we have certain uh, tools. They're not widely used in the community, but like there is a, uh, a scoring system that you can turn on in your account, and you can filter recent changes to see, like I have it set up so I can see recent edits that are thought by the machine learning model to be bad edits, but made in good faith, because I find that interesting. Like it's not vandalism, it's like somebody did something kind of not very good, and, and I, I like looking at that. How accurate is it? It's interesting. It's interesting enough. Are we anywhere near being able to sort of have a bot write Wikipedia entries or even do good quality machine translation from one language to another? Not really. Uh, and I think once you become, I think, like GPT-3 and those kind of models, they're, they're impressive in their ability to turn out plausible sounding bullshit. Um, but in terms of the kinds of things that Wikipedians care about, and they're very sort of particular. Uh, we're a long way from that. I do think, I do agree with you, like I, I'm really interested in ideas around um, sort of uh, machine learning models or AI that can flag things up to sort of say, oh, hi, I'm Robot, I've been reading. This looks a little weird to me. Could a human look at this, please? And the human might go, okay, bot, you're wrong. Or be like, oh, that's interesting. And as long as a model like that is good enough to make it worth people's time. It's like, you've shown me something that I'm interested in, that I know about, and that it looks like there's a problem. That's actually, I feel good about that because that's like a good use of my time rather than just randomly trying to edit things that are already good enough. So it's interesting, but so far we're really at a very early stage of figuring stuff like that out. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a round of applause to Jimmy Wales. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much.